and welcome back to iProperty Radio with myself, Carol Tallon. You can contact us on social media at iProperty Radio or email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. In the PropTech hot seat today, we have a returning guest, Tim Strether, Managing Director of Spica Technologies. Tim, welcome back. Thank you for joining us. One of our first PropTech interviews for 2023. Thank you, Carol. Yeah, great to see you again. Um, Tim, you know, it's only a few months since we spoke last, but I feel like a lot has happened in your area. So perhaps before we get into that, you might just remind our audience who might not have heard your previous interview, just maybe give a bit of background about yourself and the team at Spica Technologies. Yes, no problem at all. So, uh, so yeah, I'm the managing director at Spica Technologies, both here in the UK and now with our new division in Sweden. Um, Spike has been around since 2015. We started out as an IoT systems integrator in the real estate space and have grown over the years, um, culminating in an acquisition last year by the Nordomatic Group. So Nordomatic is uh, a leading BMS systems integrator uh, out of the Nordics, but also now pre present in the UK uh, and Western Europe, uh, specifically North, uh, Netherlands and Benelux. So we, we are effectively the prop tech division of Nordomatic. So all things software for the group um, with a big focus on digital disruption really in the industry and using software technologies to help improve energy efficiency, uh, building operations, but also workplace experience and productivity for the people actually using the buildings. And um, Tim, thank you for that. I mean, it's such a topical area at the moment. One of the things that I know we focused on in our last interview, and I have to touch on it now because I think it is still one of the most important parts of um, when we're looking at smart building technology or smart buildings and the technologies that are powering that, and that is around integrations. So um, can you tell me, maybe give people a bit of an overview at the moment, um, because you've got a nice geographical spread, um, yes. you might just kind of share where are we in the marketplace in terms of integration? Because I see, I still see a lot of ad hoc solutions. Yeah, I think you're right, Carol. It's um, it's a maturing market. We're not there yet. I, th I think it's going to look a very, very different space in the next five years. But traditionally, you know, the, the real estate industry in general has been quite immature, I would say, compared to other industries. I, I spent a lot of my career working in uh in finance and retail, they are, and, and a lot of those companies will talk about themselves as being technology companies now, you know, the, the banks especially. Um, I think real estate is somewhat behind. Integration and, and removing the silos that exist in our buildings is, um, is getting better, but it is not perfect by any means. And it's certainly one of the key things that we try and do at Spyco is, uh, is look at integration as one of the most important things in terms of how you can actually pull all these different data sets together so that you can en enable change. Um, over the last number of years, certainly the, the trends and the pundits were, were, were certainly <laughs> forecasting a lot of M&A activity. Now, that's one thing that would actually help integrations. So while it has been talked about and touted for the last number of years, the reality is that actually 2022 saw quite a lot of M&A activity. And we know that there's a lot on the, on the table for 2023. Is that making a difference? I think it's it is making a difference, but what you have to remember, of course, is that MA breeds bigger companies, and quite often those bigger companies actually don't want integration. Uh integration can be seen as a negative by some businesses who think, well, you know, this this means that our bespoke systems are gonna have less traction. So, but I think I'd certainly the the, the more forward-thinking businesses understand that you know you're you typically uh, you know as a as an asset owner 
you might have a portfolio of 100 buildings, they are all going to have very different systems. They'll have different BMS systems, different room booking systems, catering, all these things. So it is definitely important to be able to integrate with, with different things. And uh, yeah, I, I, I think generally the M&A activity is helping with that. You know, it's interesting to hear that that perspective on it because the reality is we've seen a lot of resistance for integrations um, at startup level and innovator level. And it's part of it comes down to, I don't want to say hubris, but there's definitely, a, a, you know, founders thrive by believing they've got the best solution. You know, that's that's their modus operandi. So that, that's that's where, that, you know, they genuinely believe that they are solving the biggest problem and their solution is the best way to solve this problem. And sometimes there's some problems that just, yes, they're problems, but they're not viable um, to be fixed in some cases. It's not worth it for the for the company to fix it. So actually the interesting thing, I would have thought that with M&A that you would, because you have different systems coming together, that would open up the door for integrations. Whereas if that actually becomes a chokehold, then the sector might be in genuine trouble because it will be locking out innovators and startups yeah I, I think that's definitely something to to watch in the future um i mean the reality of it is that uh i said you you cannot stop it and if you look at other industries it's always been the way that integration is is what drives change actually and, and disruption um i think um i think it's important that everybody tries to embrace it our, our view on this is we see ourselves as the digital backbone layer you know, first, first and foremost, we want to be that kind of integration key that can pull different things together. Um, and from our perspective, and I think a lot of a lot of tech startups would take um, probably the same view here. You don't have the resources to do everything. Um, and even the big company, you know, the, the Microsofts of this world, they can't do everything to everybody. So the key is to work out what's what's your base location. You know, what, what are you going to be the absolute best at? And your specialisms that's what you should focus on um but if there's another company that's got something else or you know the market says that there are 10 leading people in this space why try and reinvent the wheel well you'd be better off trying to work with those companies um and offer up uh, a solution that that can fix fix the problems for for uh, for our customers in different ways i think that's important. Um I think it's fair to say the spike of technologies is a really good example of that. And while we probably don't have time to get into it today, I would encourage any startups who are really kind of dancing around this issue and not fully understanding the pros and cons, maybe to listen back to our previous interview, because I think you covered that really well. And in fact, what's really interesting is that by focusing on the one thing that you do well, it actually allowed you to grow into other areas. So let's let's talk about one of the other areas, because the particularly interesting one at the moment, user experience. Um, because COVID changed so much, our behaviours post-COVID are still a little bit up in the air. We still don't understand exactly what's happening. Looking at the data you have across the different regions, what can you tell us about maybe user experience trends, uh, either from 2022 or that that look like they're likely to become trends in 2023? Yeah, sure. So I think I think from a, from a UX perspective, there's definitely, you know, the trend is still continuing from mobile technology stance. And I think that has become much more mature um, than it certainly was pre-COVID. So most of our clients, whether they are asset owners, landlords, service providers, or indeed tenants, I think there's a there's a definite view that the that the user experience should be driven through mobile. People expect that in their in their daily lives outside of work, and it's now becoming de facto within work as well. So that that mobile 
uh, view on things. And then the, the ability via that mobile communication to pull together the data that wasn't previously available. So for the users to be able to have access to things within the building, make decisions in the hybrid world, you know, what day are they going to go in, for example, based on is your colleague actually going to be there today? I think we're past the point of people going in nine to five to sit at a desk with the headphones on doing emails. That's that's not uh, uh, productive these days. So having the data for the user to make informed decisions on when they're going to use the office, which office they're going to use is very important. We see a big trend at the moment around access control is one of the one of the new killer apps coming down. So you know, the ability to have mobile access control for um, car parking, access into the building, access to secure areas, that is becoming very prevalent. And, um, and I, so I would say during COVID, you know, the, the main workplace experience UX was around desk booking because it was very important to be able to do that. That's still there, but I think there are other things that are going to overtake that in the future. And I, and I definitely see access control as, um, as one of the key things this year. Okay, and that's something that we've actually had. I think we had an in-depth conversation uh, with the US-based consultant Liz Odessa, uh, Lee Odess, about this. And um, again, that was a really interesting topic to see. You know, where I, I think we were looking at kind of the the old-fashioned model of um, maybe how to keep people out, and now it's how to let the right people in. Yeah. And there's so much change around that, and it's so fundamental actually to to real estate. But again, these are trends that that are changing. One of the terms you use there um, around informed decisions, look, everything we're talking about, I think in PropTech comes back to the underlying data and it's all about making informed yes. decisions. So in that, let's switch to one of the biggest topics that your company is dealing with at the moment, and that is ESG. ESG got a little bit of a ESG bashing in 2022. What, what's your take? What's your take on progress that's been made? I think it's... Uh... No doubt, it's one of the biggest topics in the industry today. Uh, everyone has uh, their own version of the story um, going out to the market. It's it's potentially the biggest differentiator and disruptor that I see for, for both um, service providers into the industry, but also how corporates, landlords, asset owners actually define themselves and, and become or continue to be successful into the future. Um, I find it very interesting um, how important ESG is to companies does tend to change based on global econ economic factors. So for me, there were, there were three key areas that affect ESG in terms of, um, of how companies think about it. Um, I'll, deal, I'll deal with two easier ones first, then we'll come back to the third. So the first one is, um, is corporate social responsibility. I think we've seen a big shift in the last five years of how companies think about ESG and how they talk about it externally. Um, and this, that's twofold, I think. First of all, it's important for us all in our daily lives. Um, there's a lot of credence behind how people think about ESG in terms of what company they want to work for. So recruiting and attracting the right talent to your company based on your ESG credentials is very important. And I think there we're thinking I guess a bit more about the, the S in ESG. A lot of people just think about the E, the energy, but the social aspect there is very important. Um, and also linked to that, it's about the company's public portrayal. You know, how, how are they seen in the marketplace? It affects the share valuation. It affects, um, you know, what they can do with M&A. 
etc so so they see it the, the the corporate social piece is important for sure the second piece is compliance which obviously in all industries drives change um and you've seen quite a lot of change i would say in the last couple of years on the compliance side so um the um uk financial uh, conduct authority have in, implemented sdr um over the last year so sustainable disclosure um, this is slightly different to the European version, so the SFDR regulations that have come in as well, um, but similar principles. The UK one is much more focused on um, labels and product labels, so a, a better way of being able to describe how good a building is. Um, and then in, in uh, the USA, obviously, you've got the, um, the SEC piece, which was big news last year in terms of the regulations they're looking to put through. So I think the compliance is coming. But it's still lagging behind, if I'm honest. You've got issues now with internationalization, diff different uh, regulations. And, and the truth is that there's very few lawsuits being filed from companies that are not following the rules today. Um, that has to change. If compliance is really going to drive the industry, that's, that's, um, that's very important. The third one, which is what everyone's aware of at the moment, is the economic side. So how can ESG influence from an economic perspective, what companies are doing. Um, and the, the obvious example there is the global um, energy crisis that we're all facing today, um, and under terrible circumstances, obviously, with Ukraine last year. Um, as is normally the case, it's money that drives change. So of the, of the three drivers, it's, it's the energy piece, spiraling energy costs, and also how how companies can use cost as a driver for uh, attracting retaining customers. So, you know, if you're if you're an asset owner and you can offer a, a reduced rates and your energy costs are lower, then you're going to be more successful. So unfortunately, it always comes down to the cost argument as the number one driver. That's that's what I see. And um, is that unfortunate, though? I, the reality is I, I, I can kind of take from your tone that you don't believe money should be the driver and that you know, compliance needs to be better in order to be the driver, but actually should compliance be the driver? I don't, I'm not sure it should. I think that actually if we're genuinely looking at building excellence, then compliance should almost be the lowest common denominator. So actually the differentiator for great buildings and great standards and for occupiers to want those shouldn't be compliance. Um, and, and while we can say money drives change, break down the commercial imperative and what is it, means a better user experience, better customer experience, better tenant experience. Um, it means better uh, staff and employee experience. So that helps recruiting. And all of these bundled together help the reputation. So I, I suppose, look, there's been a lot of kind of accusations around greenwashing um, when it comes to ESG. I mean, you refer to ESG credentials. And I think, I don't think it's clear what are good credentials um, in the ESG space right now. But you know what? I, I don't think that that's necessarily, necessarily a failing. I think that that's um, a symptom of where we are on the journey. And so while there was quite um, joking scepticism, you know, when we saw, you know, maybe 18 months ago, everybody on their LinkedIn profile, suddenly every company changed from being asset managers uh, in their in their uh, job description to sustainability managers. And I, I, you know, I think it's not cynical to say that most of these people genuinely didn't know what the role involved or what it was about, and they weren't necessarily qualified for it. However, that doing that, to my mind, is a strong signal 
from the company that actually we know this is important and we want to get better and we're designating resources. So as long as that sustainability person is given the resources to learn more, to be able to affect change, to be able to innovate, to be able to have innovation fail and start over. These are the really important things. So um, I, I think that I've maybe softened a little um, and I think that some of these claims you know it is symptomatic of where we are in the journey and i'm not sure that we should condemn those i think that actually we need to be encouraging those um that that's where we're going to that's where we're going to find the route to excellence as long as those people are resourced um at the end of the day it, it will all come back to delivering and the performance and the metrics so this is maybe where spica technologies comes in so what kind of advice before we wrap up today, Tim, do you know, for people who are merely or for portfolio owners who are at perhaps an earlier stage of the journey, what kind of what kind of uh, first steps can you give them? Yeah, a good question, Carol. And just just to finish your last point there, so I, I'm with you on the regulation piece. I don't think it should be number one, but I think it's I think there's been a certain amount of cop out, I guess, on the, because the, that is, the regulation is something that we could use, the governments could use to really drive. But obviously it comes back to how that affects the economy. For me, as a humble geographer, <laughs> my background, climate change is very close to my heart. And I, I find it difficult sometimes to see how industry, how easy it is to forget COP26, for example. Um, you know, three months later, everyone's forgotten all about it. It's off the news. But uh, yes. And in terms of getting started, I think um, I think the key thing for all companies to think about is you you need a long term strategy and a vision for ESG and how it's going to help you as a, you know the overall company. But you also need to focus on quick wins because no one's going to invest millions and millions into a five year plan. So the important thing is to start small, something that's achievable and measurable, and take it forward from there. The three key steps for me when you're thinking about smart buildings from an ESG perspective, first of all, you need to be able to monitor. You need the data you mentioned at the top of the call. You need the data before you can do anything. Without the data, you're kind of guessing. Um, and, and it's hard to tell the board to make a decision if you haven't got the informed evidence. So uh, uh, monitoring is important. You can then measure correctly. And only at that point can you then start to put uh, controls into place and ideally automation control. So those are the kind of three things to think about. If you're starting out, you've got to be at the, the monitoring point first, because otherwise you're not, you're not going to be able to take it forward. Um, and I think from a building perspective, it has to be focused on energy today because that is number one for, for everybody. And the good thing to say is there is, there's a huge amount that can be done uh, um, for any building, I would say. It doesn't matter the maturity, whether they've got brand new BMS systems that they've just put in or they've got legacy applications that have been there for 15 years. Being able to integrate to those um, gives you a huge amount of opportunity to, to make savings. And I think where the market's changed in the last three years, three years ago, there were some good systems out there where you could actually get the data and then tell you, oh, if you, if you did this, if you tweak this, you're going to make some make some changes, make some savings, look at CO2 reduction. That's fine. But really where we are today, because of the advent of technology, is we're now in a world where we can combine that integration and analytics with artificial intelligence and actually start to automate these buildings and automate your overall portfolio. So have a dashboard. Somebody is looking at the information. 
but not having to change it themselves. So that artificial intelligence, uh, automation of HVAC systems is the number one thing that people could get started with. And within a few weeks, actually, you know, have, have savings. And we've got clients saving 30 to 40% of their energy costs at the moment with this kind of technology. Okay, uh, sound advice there, Tim, and um, a solid place to start to start the exploration there. Thank you so much. That was Tim Strether of Spica Technologies. And that's it from us this week. You can get in touch with the show on social media at iProperty Radio or by email hello at iPropertyRadio.com. My thanks to the Hear Me Roar production team and to Luke Delaney on sound for Dublin South FM. Until next time, thank you for listening.